listening to WLPN, 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lacero, and this is the Sunday, November 7th, 2021 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's program, Striketober is becoming Strikevember, or Strikesgiving. I've heard different iterations of the terminology, none of which unfortunately roll off the tongue quite as easily as Striketober, but what matters is that the 2021 strike wave continues. However, as you will hear later in tonight's program, perhaps I need to be a tad more careful about using the term strike wave. There is potentially more than semantics at stake in using that term, but we'll get to that later. What's more important is that the upsurge in militant activity, let's call it that for now, among the working class shows little signs of abating. Perhaps the best evidence for this yet, the striking workers at John Deere have turned down yet another tentative agreement between their union, the UAW, and the company. Clearly, these workers are sensing their power and are fighting to regain the ground lost in decades of concessionary contracts. To be clear, the deal was rejected by a margin of 55 to 45 percent in a vote on November 2nd, not the over 90 percent rejection of the first tentative deal back in mid-October, which launched the strike. But it was a rejection nonetheless. The company is talking tough now, of course, and saying that the latest offer was their best and final and that they will not return to the bargaining table. We shall see. Meanwhile, we still await the vote of the IATSE members focused in the film industry on their tentative deal. I went on a limb on the last program and predicted that they will vote it down based on what I've heard, but will not know until November 15th or so. The voting is scheduled to start on the 12th. And the workers at the West Coast healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente are set to strike on November 15th. Meanwhile, the strike of workers at Kellogg's is entering its second month, almost 10 days longer than the strike at John Deere. They too rejected the company's latest offer just days ago. We'll hear directly from the Kellogg's workers about the reasons for their strike in the second half of tonight's program. Before that, we're going to hear some important insights on the perhaps prematurely named 2021 strike wave, and in particular the John Deere strike from the very insightful labor commentator Maximilian Alvarez. Following that, we're going to hear from some seasoned professional labor movement organizers with the AFL-CIO about their thoughts on this season of strikes. But let's start with a labor news highlight from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. Much of the discussion about the efforts to organize workers at Amazon is focused on efforts domestically, such as the contract vote at the Bessemer, Alabama plant, which will get a second bite at the apple due to the company's illegal anti-union tactics in the first round, and the efforts of the Teamsters Union to organize Amazon across the country. What has received less attention is the tremendous amount of organizing abroad, which has already made even greater gains. In this episode of Solidarity News, we'll hear about these international organizing efforts. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Thursday, November 4th, 2021. I'm Mark Bolach. The giant online business Amazon is being increasingly challenged globally by labor unions because of its pay and working conditions. The company has 1,300,000 employees. In 2020, it earned $21 billion. It is the largest internet company by revenue in the world. In the United States, it is the second largest private employer after Walmart. Amazon has been criticized for practices such as promoting an inhuman work culture, poor pay, overbearing technological surveillance, anti-competitive behavior, and more. 
to find out how the labor movement is trying to improve the pay and working conditions for Amazon workers, I talked to Christy Hoffman. Ms. Hoffman is the General Secretary of Uni Global Union. Uni is the worldwide labor organization which represents workers in the skills and services sectors. It represents 20 million union members in 150 countries. I asked Ms. Hoffman to describe some of the labor campaigns aimed at Amazon. That's a key question for the work around Amazon. And, and let me say that across the world, workers have been taking on Amazon in some cases for years, in some cases more intensively during the pandemic. I mean, when we look at the U.S., Italy, France, Spain, and Germany, all of those countries' workers have been very active, especially during the pandemic, striking over safety with protesting over conditions in the warehouses as the speed went up during the pandemic, so did some of the safety concerns. But even beyond that, I want to say specifically Germany, the German Union Verity has been continuing to expand its footprint to grow its membership. They had a strike just this week involving seven fulfillment centers, making great progress in growing their membership and their presence across the industry. In Italy, there was a national strike from top to bottom, from bottom to top, ranging from the cleaners all the way through to the gig delivery drivers, the national strike. And that resulted in their ability to negotiate a national protocol with Amazon, which opens the door to negotiating over all kinds of issues at the local level. Of course, everyone's aware of the Amazon campaign-led investor Alabama by RWDSU in the United States, a heroic effort and to be continued. And the Teamsters are really doing a great job engaging their UPS members at the local level all around the country, you know, long game, getting ready to take on Amazon. Spain, the workers there have reached an agreement in Madrid. They've also were very active on safety issues during the pandemic. So we're really seeing quite a bit of activity across any number of countries. That's going to continue. Why is it important to work globally to change and unionize Amazon? Well, start with the fact that Amazon is really the iconic corporation of our time that captures all the issues we really care about, whether it is very anti-union to the core, precarious work, tax dodging, introduction of technology, which breaks the body and spirit of workers with algorithmic management, monopolistic. All of these issues have to be taken on, you know, as a package. This is the package you get with Amazon, and this is what we're looking at from a global perspective. So we think globally we need to raise awareness about these issues, share and develop joint strategies, not only among unions, but also among NGOs that are active in these different spaces, digital rights, for example. Amazon's business model is the same everywhere. It's not as if they have one model of getting work done in California and another one in Poland. It's really the same model, and they also need to know they're going to face worker resistance everywhere. Wherever they go in the world, the unions should be ready, and they are ready to take them on. They understand the challenges that they're presented, that their economy is presented when when Amazon's there. So we've got to do this as a global movement, and that's the way we are going to do it. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Thank you to Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. On our last episode of the program, you heard me rather jubilantly celebrate the 2021 strike wave and commit to covering it extensively here on the program. Well, that coverage continues tonight with a little help from our friends in the Labor Radio Podcast Network as well as elsewhere. One of those elsewheres is a really interesting emerging source of labor news, the Center on Education and Labor at the public policy think tank New America. In what I believe is their inaugural labor-oriented discussion, host Mary Alice McCarthy interviewed a stellar group of labor journalists and professors. They included labor historian Tony Gilpin and Chris Martin, professor of digital journalism at the University of Northern Iowa, right in John Deere's backyard. I don't have time to broadcast the full episode tonight, but I will have a link up at laborexpress.org to the full discussion. It was a really tremendous, very interesting, and insightful discussion. What I will be airing tonight is the part of the discussion that featured Maximilian Alvarez, editor-in-chief of the Real News Network. Alvarez has been a very insightful labor journalist who we featured previously here on Labor Express, and I had the pleasure of speaking on a panel with him back in the 2020 Labor History Society Conference. In this interview, Alvarez really provides some terrific insight into the wave of strikes as of late, but he cautions against using the term strike wave. And what I think is a fairly compelling argument, even if the basis of that caution may be vanishing with each week, this wave of strikes continues. The interview starts with host McCarthy asking Alvarez why it is that the UAW seem willing to recommend to the dear workers a contract that they overwhelmingly rejected. Note that the interview took place before the more recent second contract offer rejection. It's a great question. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, I just wanted to kind of say up front that I'll, I'll try to stick to details that won't <clears throat> date this conversation too much. But as we speak, um, UAW members with John Deere are currently voting on or maybe voting just finished, um, uh, but they are currently voting on ratifying the new contract that's been proposed. Uh, but as you mentioned, um, they overwhelmingly, like over 90% of the people who voted, voted it down uh, in early October when they were presented with the initial contract. Um, and I think that that's really the important place to start with the question that you asked, right, is like, um, how could there be such a staggering divide between the rank and file and John Deere and the UAW international leadership? Um, because that was a pretty darn significant divide, right? And in retrospect, it really shouldn't be all that surprising. I mean, I think one of the things that I always stress to people uh, is that, you know, we can talk about this later uh, in, in the panel with everyone kind of involved. But I mean, there is, as we've been trying to track at the Real News Network, right, um, something happening uh, right now. Um, the, the labor movement has been knocked on its back uh, for many decades and so we, we obviously need to temper our expectations, right? I mean, even though we are excited about the strikes that have been cropping up, the kind of increasing sense of labor militancy, not just within uh, unions, but, you know, it's really manifesting in things like historic numbers of American workers voluntarily quitting their jobs um, and, and kind of being way more vocal in public about, uh, you know, the what what kind of treatment they're getting at their jobs and what they're not going to put up with anymore. And so the fact that so many workers in the United States, um, but not exclusively, are feeling a bit more emboldened 
to take this step, I think is really significant. And it's also not, you know, unprecedented, right? This is something that tends to happen after periods of great um, sacrifice, right? I mean, a lot of people compared COVID-19 to the Spanish flu a century ago, you know, a century ago after the Spanish flu in 1918, you did see a lot of increased kind of labor militancy, not just because workers, you know, had made a lot of sacrifices during the Spanish flu, but because they'd made a hell of a lot of sacrifices during wartime, right? And they had also made a lot of uh, sacrifices to keep production going, to not kind of assert, you know, like their demands in the workplace for the greater nationalist effort. There's a lot of history I'm paving over, right, where, you know, in, in, including the AFL, like really, uh, you know, squashed its left wing um, to make the sort of bargain with the government that, you know, it would keep production going, yada, yada, yada. Point being is that after that, you did see a lot of workers say, hey, we tightened our belts. We made, you know, the war effort possible. We we kept this country afloat. We want restitution, right? <laughs> you know, like we, we want what we are owed. You are seeing a kind of similar generalized sense among the American workforce now that has not only been tightening its belt and keeping society afloat through the COVID-19 pandemic, including workers at John Deere who were deemed essential and who risked their lives for the past two years to keep not only keep this company going, but to make it more profitable than it has ever been in its history. John Deere is slated to record between 5.7 and 5.9 billion dollars in profits this year. That's almost double its its most profitable year in the past. And yet, uh, that first contract that was proposed was demanding more concessions from workers. So that that that's where I'm kind of getting with this, right? So after workers have sacrificed a lot, after they've been told how essential they are and praised in the media for all the sacrifices that they're making something really isn't adding up here as we are quote unquote kind of eking our way out of the pandemic where you know workers are being told to give up more by bosses and companies that are raking in more than they ever have i think that's really the elephant in the room here we we tend to feel like perhaps we did in the great recession that all of us are in the same boat that there were, we're all just trying to survive that's not the case we're not in the same boat a lot of us primarily working people had to sacrifice a whole hell of a lot over the past two years just like we sacrificed a whole hell of a lot in the wake of the recession that is not the case for companies like john deere they didn't sacrifice crap right like they are they are raking in as i said record profits and a lot of companies that have been experiencing strikes have been seeing record demand. That includes Frito-Lay and their workers went on strike in July. A lot of people are staying home in the pandemic. That means a lot of people are eating a lot more chips. Production has been ramping up, but Frito-Lay treated its workers so terribly that it couldn't retain a lot of people. So it was forcing the staff that remained into a bunch of forced overtime. So they were working, you know, like over 12 hours a day, seven days a week, never seeing their family. And then again, being told in contract negotiations that they had to give up more for a company that was seeing that sort of record demand. Same was true with Nabisco. Same was true with the Heaven Hill distillery workers. A lot of people were drinking a lot more whiskey over the, the pandemic. And yet these workers were being told to accept uh, more cuts. So what you're seeing here is a real general, I think, hazy sort of class struggle happening here where more rank and filers, whether they are attached to uh, an organized labor movement or not, are really sensing that sort of divide between the workers who have sacrificed a lot 
and um, you know the people at the top who are just raking in record profits, paying huge dividends. The John Deere CEO gave himself a, a huge raise, you know, and paid a huge dividend. So something's really not adding up. And unfortunately, the UAW international leadership, um, you know, was 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 is is way more kind of aligned with management. Uh, and the fact that it did not kind of sense that the rank and file would overwhelmingly reject this initial contract is kind of a, a clear as day example of how that big that divide is. So let me let me ask a follow up question, Max. Um, you know, you have been writing about a lot of labor actions. You know, taxi drivers in New York, the Kaiser Permanente workers, the um, the miners in Alabama. Um, and you know, in hearing you talk to a, a you know, one of the in one of the articles, you 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 talk about how the the sort of contagion effect of sort of successful labor activism. So I'm just wondering, in the conversations that you're having with workers on the ground, and 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 sort of also with sort of other researchers and experts, are are you getting a sense that that people are, are are leaning in and hearing, you know, are being affected by what other workers are doing in other in other areas. You know, we saw that a little bit with the with the red for ed strikes in the 2018 and 2019. Is it is it are, are people sort of be feeling emboldened by what's happening or are these kind of isolated events that that, that you're seeing? Uh, I think it's a great question. And I think like one of the things that has genuinely excited me is that I am starting to hear more folks from the picket lines referencing these other struggles, right? I mean, because that, you know, I, I think that obviously those of us for a number of reasons who have like, because we got to take, I guess, the long view here, right? I grew up very conservative in a very anti-union like family. Like we weren't militantly anti-union, but we had Fox News on all the time, right? I mean, we were conservative and we were just kind of drenched in all of that kind of anti-labor uh, propaganda that, you know, Chris can tell you about so well, right? Um, and so the very fact that labor struggles like a unionizing effort at the Bessemer Fulfillment Center in, in Amazon Fulfillment Center in Alabama, or as you mentioned, the 1100 coal miners at Warrior Met Coal who have been on strike uh, since April, the 800 uh, nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, who have been on strike since March, right? The very fact that these would even be news stories um, is it has been kind of unthinkable for most of my lifetime. So it is genuinely exciting that more and more people are getting invested in these sorts of struggles and more and more people are identifying with these struggles. I think that that's one of the kind of key things here, right? Like after the recession, the ruling class could not help themselves. They've just tried to take more and more and as much as they possibly can. And so more and more people have been pushed into that downward funnel of the what Bernie Sanders famously called the race to the bottom, whether that be gig workers, whether that be educators, whether that be healthcare workers, workers have been getting ripped off in this country for a long time. And yet um, the pandemic made it abundantly clear that, as I said, we're not all in the same boat. The wealth of the 1% has exploded over the past two years to really unfathomable numbers, as have the profits uh, and, and consumer demand for a lot of the uh, businesses that are experiencing strikes right now, as I mentioned. And so, again, I think that the more people feel identified with that sort of labor strife, the more invested they are getting in these kinds of stories. And that's exciting. However, I, I would really stress to folks kind of watching here that we there is a sort of ethical necessity for all of us who are invested in these struggles, right? We have to kind of approach this conscientiously, right? And, and I have a couple kind of things to say about that is one, 
you know, we can't just kind of project onto these struggles what we want to see. We have to, as I try to stress on my show, Working People, where I interview workers themselves and have them really tell their stories about their struggles and their lives and try to go from there, but also in the reporting that we do at The Real News, right? You have to try to really understand what workers are telling you about their struggles. Uh, you have to really kind of know what is there and what isn't and be responsible with how you're sort of reporting this stuff. Um, because workers are not stupid, right? People will know if you're misrepresenting their cause, right? And they will, you know, act accordingly. And so I've seen some people kind of jumping in talking about, oh, this is the beginning of a general strike, or this is a huge strike wave. And like, look, I want that more than anyone too, right? But we're as as Luis Feliz Leon and I wrote in, in a piece recently for The Real News, like we're not quite there yet, right? The labor movement itself has a lot of work to do um, to increase rank and file democracy in its ranks. We're seeing that play out in the John Deere strike right now. The UAW is currently, the membership is currently voting on a historic referendum that would allow the membership and retirees to directly elect their international union uh, leadership like the Teamsters were able to do a couple decades ago, that would be hugely significant. That would give the rank and file more say over the kind of bargaining that the leadership is doing in secret to present the kind of contracts that were overwhelmingly rejected by John Deere membership earlier last month. But uh, here's, here's what I'll say and then I'll shut up, is that as far as like whether or not this is a strike wave, right, and, and what we can make of this moment, what I've been trying to kind of tell people is that there are a lot of institutional barriers to the organized labor movement growing at the rate that we want it to. There are a lot of internal problems with unions that 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 need to be addressed um, in in the kind of necessary rank and file struggle. Um, there are a lot of legal barriers, as we saw with Amazon, that that empower bosses to smash organizing efforts. There are a lot of there's a long history of corporate media either drowning out labor coverage or covering it very unsympathetically right so we have a long way to go until this can like really develop into a big unified thing but what i think is exciting right is that as you mentioned mary like you know a couple of a number of strikes happening at the same time is different from a strike wave right um what what is essential for a wave is that it is self-referential that it recognizes itself as something collective that people are seeing other strikes and saying hey you know like they're doing it we're getting screwed over maybe we should do it right i am hearing more people talk about that i am hearing more people say i saw my coworker quit and put out their resume on indeed.com and demand twice what they were getting owed and they got it so now i'm gonna quit right i mean so people are taking notice the kind of amount of support that labor struggles are getting online is playing some role in that and we in the media have a responsibility to put that out there and to be those connector points that allow people to see one another and learn from one another and their struggles. And so I do think that, you know, you're seeing a lot of great messages of solidarity with folks, you know, like on the Kellogg's picket line, uh, folks, UFCW farm workers kind of posting about solidarity with Kellogg's workers, um, you know, people uh, at John Deere, um and and other picket lines kind of expressing solidarity with one another people showing up to the taxi uh, uh the the hunger strike that taxi workers in new york are still on 
Uh, they are literally starving themselves because they've been screwed over by City Hall and burdened by massive amounts of debt. Uh, and Mayor Bill de Blasio isn't doing anything to really address that. But people are saying they're 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 drawing those connections. They are they are starting to be more vocal about what unites us. Um, and I think that that is significant. Again, that was only a small section of the hour-long discussion entitled Striketober to Strike Vember, the John Deere Strike, Labor Activism, and What It Means for the Future, produced by the Center on Education and Labor at New America. For the full program, check out the link provided up at laborexpress.org. I guarantee you will find it worth your time. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. The Action Network describes itself as a mission-driven organization dedicated to building progressive power. Their goal is to empower progressive activism through organizing, mobilization, and digital strategies, anything that brings people together and motivates them to act for progressive change. Brian Young of the Action Network is also organizing discussions on labor issues and recently hosted a discussion entitled The Tools Powering the Picket Line, How Workers Are Using Organizing Technology to Build Power, with two seasoned organizers with the AFL-CIO. The topic of discussion was focused on organizing methodology and tools, especially technology, behind the recent wave of strikes across the nation. I don't have time to air the full discussion on tonight's episode, but it is linked up at laborexpress.org. What I'm going to air for you is the start of that discussion in which both of the organizers gave their view on the origins of the recent labor upsurge. You will hear the organizers introduce themselves first and then host Brian Young asking them questions on this topic. So I'm Liz Riley. I'm the organizing data strategist here at the National AFL-CIO, and I have been an organizer for the last 10 years in the labor movement, started at SEIU in Michigan, and then moved on to the Michigan Nurses Association, and I'm really excited to be here. Uh, My name is Christian Sweeney, and I'm the deputy organizing director uh, at the AFL-CIO. I also have been an organizer, I guess, um, professionally since about 1997, um, and unprofessionally uh, before then. Um, but I got my start in the UAW uh, and was on the UAW staff for about 10 years before coming to the AFL about 10 years ago. What are, what are you both seeing? Um, you know, why are we in this moment? You know, is there a real moment that's happening now with interest in organizing among workers? And just, you know, any stories you're, you're hearing out there? I'd love to jump in, Christian, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah, please. So what the reason I think we're in this moment is kind of twofold, but I think primarily it's because of the last 10, 20, 40 years of all of the groundwork that organizers in the labor movement have been setting in line, right? So as an organizer, you learn to recognize these moments. I call them organizing moments where there's just you can't plan it or predict it. It just things light on fire. And if you've done the groundwork, the donkey work of having one-on-one conversations, building relationships, building a campaign, building your union, then when those organizing moments happen, you're prepared to capture it. And I think right now we're in an organizing moment on a global scale. And because we have been working so doggedly for the last decade, two decades, build on the shoulders for of um, people that came before us, the last hundred years, uh, we're in a position to capitalize on this organizing moment. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I'd sort of think that, Liz, that it's really about being ready to capitalize on 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 moments. The um, you know the growth in the labor movement has come in spurts. If you look over the history of the of the whole labor movement, and it's not like during those periods where the where the labor movement wasn't growing, it's not like people were sitting on their hands. They were doing all kinds of things. They were trying things and failing. They were you know figuring it out. 
Um, and so, you know, I knock on wood, we're due for a spurt. So we're, we're hoping that this is the, you know, this, this is part of it. Um, but I would say, you know, there's obviously there's been a ton of press attention about Striketober, which is, you know, fantastic. And it's really wonderful to see um, so many union members, you know, standing up for themselves. And I think it's important also to think about like the, you know, the great, the great quit, the, the great resignation is really just like little strikes all over, right? <laughs> it's a lot of people saying, you know what, this is really not enough. I'm going to go off. So we'll do something else here. Um, you know, so that's another aspect of it. But I would say that, you know, while there's been a lot of attention on sort of as this is a, a, a recent phenomenon, I'd actually say it's kind of consistent to where we were headed, where we were headed before the pandemic. If you look 2018, 2019, we had the most large strikes than any year since the early 80s. Um, you know, the, the uh, public opinion about unions has been on the uptick since about 2009. Um, and you're just getting strong, getting stronger. But I think some of those numbers are the highest they've been in, in a generation. Um, so, you know, I think uh, ultimately, I feel like it goes back to the fact that, you know, in the, the social contract is broken. It's broken that, you know, public employers and private employers, um, you know, that and, and workers are doing what they've always done. They're you know, rising up to to get a fair return on their on their on their work. Yes, it's a, I think it's a good point that this, you know, that this is a continuation and a growth. You know, I remember I was talking with one longtime union organizer a few years ago when the referees in the NFL went on strike mm-hmm. and um, the public really rallied around the referees. And when they came back, everybody cheered them. And you go back to previous, you know, sports because sports capture so many people that aren't necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. connected to progressive organizing. Yeah. Um, sure. You know, you go back to earlier strikes and it wasn't the same way. Um, so I do think, you know, it's a, it's a really good point. This has grown. And as you said, Liz, it's a growth out of years of organizing and actually you know before we get in that's because i you know organizing is a word that's thrown around a lot but go ahead chris i'm sorry if i just want to add one other thing though but i also i I do think that there's this is continuation but i also feel like there's the pandemic has played a really important role and certainly the murder of george floyd you know has i think been a tremendous help to you know for people to and, and an inspiration for people to stand up for themselves and you know that there's something new happening there for sure, and that is that's not something we were seeing in exactly the same way in in, the, in those earlier years. Absolutely. So there is, I think, a, the pandemic year has been you know uh, fuel to the fire for that too. So I just wanted to make sure to mention that. No, it's a it's a good point, and you know I'll go back to Liz with a with a brief detour because I think the murder of George Floyd's a really um, good point in a case study in a way as well because you know. We did a previous, I interviewed a woman who was part of the organizing within Minnesota and the, you know, they had been, you know, Philando Castile um, uh, had been murdered before. So there'd been a lot of organizing there. So, you know, as Liz said, the, the organizing laid the groundwork, um, you know, for that moment. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was going to ask both of you to kind of dig in on that because organizing is one of those words thrown around a lot. Um, but, you know, Liz talked about that kind of, that long process of, you know, one-on-ones and talking. And why don't we just take a second and both of you just talk about how you see organizing. Um, you know, what is organizing? People talk about it with lots of things, you know, Obama wait, organizing, you know. Um, so just kind of lay out the groundwork of what we're talking about. That's a big question. There's so much to be said about that, yeah, but the first quote that comes to my mind, and Christian, maybe you know who, who this is attributed to, um, organizers, an organizer's job is to go around setting people on fire, right? So it's like people are exploited, 
that makes us angry, hurt, sad. It comes out in all kinds of sideways ways. We take it on our families. We take it out on ourselves, what have you. We distract ourselves from it. But ultimately, workers are being exploited in this country and, and worldwide. And an organizer's job is to come and listen and help you to find words to express what's happening to you and then find like get on fire right get angry about it allow that anger to come out but then direct it in a healthy way towards a solution towards um a union in our case right so that we can take that power into our own, own hands and not rely on someone outside to make things better for us because they're not going to they're just going to keep exploiting us and we're going to keep getting angry um but is it rage against the machine that sings about anger is a gift right and so organizers job is to help people find their power through that process as I mentioned earlier, that was only the intro really to a discussion of organizing techniques and technology, including some software union organizers are using. Uh, so interesting stuff. For a full discussion, check out the link up at laborexpress.org. Thank you to Jeffrey Dugas and Brian Young of the Action Network for making that audio available to us. It is very much appreciated. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a quick station ID break, but when we return, more on Strike Vember or Strikes Giving or whatever your preferred term. We will hear from the rank-and-file workers at Kellogg's on strike, so you don't want to miss that, so stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. One of our sister programs in the Labor Radio Podcast Network is a union-specific podcast produced by the BCTGM, the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Gray Millers International Union. It's always a mouthful to say that one. It's called the BCTGM Voices Project. This is the union that brought you the successful Nabisco and Frito-Lay strikes earlier this year. This is also the union that represents the striking workers at Kellogg's, who have been on strike now since early October. On a late October episode of the podcast... Host Bama Athreya interviewed several rank-and-file members to find out why they had struck and how the strike was going. You will hear complaints by the workers here of some of the same concerns raised by the John Deere workers that we talked about on our previous episode, especially the two-tier wage and benefit system. Earlier in the program, you heard Maximilian Alvarez caution against being too willing to use the term strike wave, as he argued that strike waves are self-referential, meaning that all workers involved see themselves as part of something bigger and broader than their own local labor action. Well, as you will hear, clearly the Kellogg's workers do recognize a class-wide fightback. You will hear first the workers introduce themselves and then host Athreya asking them about the strike. A few notes on what you're going to hear, too, for clarity. You'll hear uh, referred to uh, a Mr. Miller or Roger Miller or Roger. That's the Eastern Central Vice President for the union. You also will hear referred to Mr. Callahan. That's Steve Callahan, who's the Chairman, President, CEO of Kellogg Company. Also, you'll hear the term used, legacy employees. That means employees that are full members with full benefits in the union, not these kind of transitional workers that you'll hear referred to, which are kind of the lower tier of workers, uh, this two-tier system that's such a problem throughout the working class uh, these days. All right. My name is Kevin Bradshaw. I'm vice president of Local 252G in Memphis. I've been with the Kellogg's Company for 20 years, and my current role in the plan is, uni is a unitizer operator, better known as case sitter operator. My name is Victor Francia, and I'm here at the uh, Omaha Kellogg's plant. Uh, with the local 50G union. I worked on the packing floor when I first started and then the second half, I've been on the process floor um, operating a coder. I am Heather Green. I'm with uh, Local 3 in Battle Creek and I'm a crew leader in the warehouse and I've been with Kellogg's for 15 years. 
Hello, I'm Donovan Williams. I've been with the Kellogg Company for eight years, and I'm a head processing operator in the processing department in Battle Creek, Michigan, local 3G. And I'm Andy Johnson, uh, processing department extruder operator. I've been with Kellogg's for three years now, local 374G. Kevin, you've been with our union for a very long time. I'm going to start with you with this question. The company, they've been saying they're deeply concerned that the union struck without allowing the employees to vote on their October 1st offer. And, you know, we know that this really sidesteps what the process of negotiations is meant to accomplish. So having been the president of this local union in the past, would you just explain what that process is supposed to accomplish? Yeah, you would never vote on anything that was not mutually agreed upon both sides. So the, the union never mutually agreed upon both uh, with the company on certain things, and there's no contract to bring back to vote on. Yeah. So in addition, Kevin, I've heard you in a couple of interviews over the last week and a half or so calling that proposal ludicrous, among other things. Can you explain yeah. ways that you mean that? I mean, we gave the company so many millions in concessions on the last master contract and for now for them to come back and say, well, we want to make it permanent. I mean, why would we sell out the future? Why would we sell out the people coming under me with less than 20 years, the people that's going to get, get hired? And why would we expect them to want to be a part of a union that sold them out? I mean, that's just crazy within itself. It's like, um, you know, me fighting against you, but still wanting you to be my friend all the time. Why would we do that? I mean, that's not to protect the livelihood of, of working people in America and the brother and sisterhood of our union members. We can't do that. I mean, it's just not the right thing to do. And, and exactly like Roger said, that's just not who we are. Right. Okay, Victor, uh, you haven't quite transitioned into a legacy employee yet. Remind me how long you've been working at the Omaha facility. Yeah, I'm going uh, to be here almost three years now. So when I first started, they told us that after some time, we were going to transition into regular full time. So in a way, that was uh, kind of a way of retention, I think. But even with that, you know, they have a 40% turnover on employees. And I think it's been higher with some classes that have came after me. Like most of the people don't make it through because of the hours or because of the responsibility that, you know, the line breaks down. What do I do? You know, minutes go by and they know that it's affecting hundreds of pounds per minute. And, uh, you know, it's too much for them. So they do have a, a high turnover rate. And, you know, maybe if those employees that decided that it's not for them, maybe if they got paid better, maybe they would have stayed, you know, uh, through COVID, it was pretty hard on us. Um, I mean, on last year's contract, when it expired, there was uh, some people here that retired and the company didn't hire right away. So there was just a bunch of vacancies, people that were moving around to jobs. And so we had to put up with the overtime, you know, staying over or coming in early. And then once COVID hit, we had a lot of people out on leave, day shift, second shift, third shift. And so like every shift had to either stay over or come in early every day. And I noticed that a bunch of other companies like Tyson, Smithfield Foods, where friends of mine and my mom worked at Tyson, they started giving incentives uh, to their, their employees, you know, monthly incentives to keep people coming to work. They got uh, their wages increased. Since the beginning of COVID, my mom told me that they've gotten $5 of a raise, you know, and, and they're, they're planning to keep it like that. And, you know, to see that while working here, you know, I, I don't feel like the company really appreciates us because they only gave us a $500 bonus, a one-time thing, while the other companies were giving monthly bonuses and increases in wages. 
And, you know, we didn't, we didn't turn our backs on them. We, we continued to come to work. We showed up, we uh, worked as a team. We sanitized the lines before we started working. Uh, it was not as easy as uh, when I first started in that sense. Uh, some of us transitionals were thinking maybe this contract is going to turn out good because they were putting out pretty good profit through COVID. I mean, a lot of people were buying non-perishable food. So they even gave their CEO a $11 million you know, bonus that year, along with everybody below him. So yeah, they were doing really good. And you know, we were hoping that with this contract, they were going to come back and give us what we deserve. So we feel like they turned their backs on us now that it's time to show appreciation for everything that we've done. When I spoke to Roger on Sunday, he was talking about how the company showed up at negotiations with their typical presentation, talking about how they have lost market share. They're no longer the number one cereal producer and they cannot be competitive like this. So to your point, it seems like you guys have already been stretched to the brink through COVID to come to the table and assume We'll just take it off the workers' backs. Like that's going to help our market share. It's just kind of backwards, for lack of a better term. It seems like. Yeah, I, I mean, instead of looking to maybe reduce the cost of, uh, I don't know, the car ends or something else, where you know it would seem more fair, they're looking to take away from us when they haven't really given us anything through, you know, through COVID and stuff, um, which really seems unfair to us. That he released a statement saying that he had a plan uh, that they were going to do good before COVID, uh, through COVID, and they even had planned that they're uh, going to be doing good after COVID. So, I mean, that's a statement that uh, Mr. Callahan released, and so they're prepared. I don't. I think they're just saying that now, you know, so they can get the contract in their favor. Kevin, do you know anything about what's going on inside of Memphis right now regarding replacement workers? Uh, well, we've heard from some very good reliable sources that they're not doing anything but cleaning and doing a lot of contracted work that they had already scheduled to be done. Um, they have been busing um, scabs in and out, but um, it's more of a, like a shell game. They'll bring four buses, and out of the four buses, they'll have 10 to 15, no more than 20 people on all four buses. <laughs> so it's trying to, they're trying to deter people and intimidate them and scare them as if, they can be replaced when they know in essence that they can't be replaced. Heather, Kellogg's put out a video this past week in response to some of our communications. One of the things that they claimed was that any overtime hours worked for you guys are voluntary. Uh, what is your response to that? Uh, the fact that they were actually able to put together that sentence just demonstrates how completely out of touch they are with what actually happens on a day-to-day week by week basis in their plants. We are scheduled seven days a week. We can ask for a day off, but you know, we can all prove and show uh, our weekend rotation lists where we were denied, denied, denied. Donovan, you talked about how you were uh, kind of heading up the planning of your grandmother's funeral. Yeah, me being a person that the responsibilities in my family falls upon, my grandmother passed away and there was basically no one other than me to plan her funeral. Talked to the HR department, tried to confirm that I could get those days off and ended up accruing six points, disciplinary points, while planning my grandmother's funeral. Went in to talk with them to try to figure out if we could do anything about those points to get them removed. They act as if their hands were tied and there, were not, there was nothing they could do to 
to help me. And I had zero points at the time. I've never had a disciplinary issue as far as having points. I've never been to the upper levels of the point system, but there was no leniency. There was no willingness to work with me. And there was no sympathy at all for my family and what we were going through at that time. What is the point system? You get a certain amount and you get fired or? Yeah, basically you get a certain amount and you get fired. And it's a progressive system. I don't necessarily want to go through the whole system right now, but for a person with zero points at the time and with the circumstances that had taken place, I would have expected a little more leniency or at least working with me a little bit. But basically what it was resulted in is me not being able to call in for roughly six months, you know, until I got those points off my record. Basically, I had to work a thousand hours to get those points off my record that had accrued from my grandmother's funeral. So if something else had come up, force over time, if you just wanted a Saturday off because you had family in town, none of that was going to be possible within that thousand hour time frame because of the company's unwillingness to work with me as far as um, taking care of that for my grandma. Andy, will you just talk about the ways that the overtime kind of just comes up? Well, you know, someone calls in on the next shift and you're five minutes before your shift's over and they're calling you up on the phone and saying, guess what? Enjoy another eight hours tonight. And you got no choice but to stay. They don't care that your kids need to be gotten off the bus and there's no one else. They don't care that, you know, you have family obligations at home. That All they want to do is run their business. And it's like, there's no forgiveness. If, if you don't have a way out or you can't get someone to cover you, you're stuck or you're going to lose your job. I've also heard whatever that happens you get forced over. It doesn't change the fact that you have to come back tomorrow, whatever time you were scheduled. You, you report for your next shift at the normal time. There is no forgiveness. If you only get eight hours off, they don't care that you have to drive an hour home to get there and then an hour back to get there. You know, they talk about safety, safety, safety in the plant. And they're jeopardizing safety every day by making someone work 16 hours day after day after day. And they just don't care. As long as no one gets hurt, they put their blinders on and keep moving. Is there any difference between this situation, whether it's legacy or transitional? Well, the transitionals get hit a lot harder than the legacy because they're late senior. And at least in Lancaster, the way the overtime set up, if no one volunteers for it, the least senior person gets it. So, you know, if you're bottom of the barrel on your shift, you're going to get hit almost every single day. And them saying that 90% of the overtime signed for, give me a break. We signed for overtime defensively to get what we want so that we don't get what we don't want. Andy and Donovan, you both have experience with being less than legacy, I guess I would say. Andy, you just transitioned. I was the last person in Lancaster to go over the Monday before the contract expired. Yeah. Okay. And Donovan, you transitioned after the last contract, as I understand. Correct. Me and a group of the other employees, a lot of those employees who aren't here anymore because of the job cuts the last go around. Well, can you guys just talk about the ways that that causes tension inside the plant? I mean, when you're talking about you are going to get hit with the overtime in front of somebody that's been there a little bit longer, like how does that cause tension between the workforce? Well, again, you talk about the tension in the plant. You know, you're the least senior guy and you've done four or five days of 12 or 16 hour days already. And all you want is to go home and catch up on your sleep. 
and they hit you for that sixth and seventh day, well, some of the more senior people are walking out the door and it, it just causes tension because, you know, you're tired, you're angry, but that's the way it is. That's the way it's always been at Kellogg. So, you know, you have to grit your teeth and bear it, but it, it ain't no fun. So on Sunday, I spoke to the lead negotiator on your guys' contract. It's our East Central Vice President, Rod Miller. And he was going through the ways that creating this permanent two-tier situation is going to start eliminating some really important benefits. And I know that, Heather, you've been there for 15 years. Will you just talk about the ways that the legacy benefits have allowed you to raise your family? Absolutely. I raised three kids. I'm a single mom. Uh, My kids are 28, 27, and 21 now. And, uh, but by the grace of God, they're all happy and healthy, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I have a daughter that, uh, struggled with addiction. Our, uh, benefits program helped put her through recovery program. And then my other two children were in sports and it was quite a few years of sports injury after sports injury. And for me personally, what that meant was that their health care, they could receive the level of care that they needed when they needed it. And I didn't have to compromise on how much I could spend on their school clothes that year because I had an enormous deductible to meet. As a single mom, there is a, enough stress and worry in the world that it meant the world to me to be able to know that their care, I didn't have to worry about that. I knew that we could go to the hospital, we could go to the doctor's office, and they would be cared for. So for me personally, that is, you know, why I came here. That's why I've stayed. And there is absolutely no reason why the next group of employees through the door should not have that same peace of mind. It makes a big difference. I was able to be more present as a parent with them with that less worry. It's very divisive when someone's spending just as much time away from their family as you are away from your family and the benefits package is different. That's what we're addressing now. And that's why we're standing outside. Just transitioning and not actually getting to experience the full benefits yet, not having to use them. But when they told me that I transitioned over, it was tears of joy knowing that I no longer had to worry about that $3,000 deductible that I had to meet before the medical picked up or knowing that if my child was sick, I didn't have to decide myself if they were sick enough to go to the doctors because, you know, we were going to get a doctor's bill. It's like you can focus your energy on other things other than worrying about them. And for the company to say, well, we're offering these people the same good insurance that we offer our salary people. No, you should be offering your salary people the same good insurance that you offer the legacy employee, not the other way around. What do you think is leading to the just change over time? where they just think that they can't give you anything like this anymore because they're losing money. Because they're greedy. That's what it all comes down to, greed at the corporate level. You know, if they want concessions, great. When the CEO and the board of directors and all the way down to the plant director and second in charge of the plant take concessions, then come to us. But till that's going to happen, don't come to us asking for concessions. We didn't get no $11 million bonus last year. Heather, you've been pretty vocal about the union label issue. We used a quote from you on social media last week. 
that said, removing the union label allows them to sell cereal made outside the country right next to ours with no way to differentiate. There's been some conflicting messaging going on here. I know for a fact that in the union negotiations with the company, they threatened them all week long that if we didn't give them what they wanted, they would send the jobs to Mexico. The company is now saying they did not include that in this negotiation. We speak to this a little bit. Well, I think the the uh, moving product to Mexico, the union label, uh, their profitability, it's, uh, they are banking on the general public just not knowing. You know, they say U.S. sales are down, but the only product on our shelves is stuff made in Mexico. If your neighbor doesn't know to look for a union logo on that box, then, you know, they're picking up a box. Like I said, they think they're buying an American brand, doing their part to make America great. And what they don't know is that they're not. They're boosting those sales so that then Kellogg's can say, well, we're doing great over here, but we're not doing good over here. So we need to shift. And it's like I said to you, it's making truth out of a lie. That label is critical. That's our pride on the box. That's American made on the box. And, you know, the, if you somebody really wants to buy the made Mexico stuff, you know, that's on the box too. Uh, but when you take that label off, the customer just doesn't know the difference. The made in Mexico product years ago were on the shelf in Battle Creek, Michigan, right next to the union made product, same product right next to each other on the shelves. Why would you ever put product made somewhere else on the shelf next to Battle Creek headquarter Cereal City, <laughs> Cereal City product? And I'm yeah. sure it happens in Lancaster, Omaha, and Memphis as well. And guys, remember, there is not a section in the grocery store shelves that has all the food made in Mexico that is being sold at a much reduced price to the consumer. You know, Kellogg's is not passing on those labor savings because they're making it in another country for much, much cheaper. The consumers aren't paying less. You know, they're yeah. still paying full price for the same stuff that we make. So all that is doing is increasing the profits this company is making. And again, on an uneducated consumer. And that to me is just disgusting. We're talking about Kellogg today, but what's going on in the streets across the working class? You know, we've got 1,400 Kellogg workers on strike with the BCTGM, but now we also have 10,000 with John Deere, 60,000 people in the film industry are getting ready to go on strike on Monday, 24,000 nurses at Kaiser Permanente. What do you think is going on? And can you talk a little bit about the opportunity that you guys have in this moment to just really get it done, what you need from this company? I mean, corporate greed is not just the Kellogg's. This is a problem in America all over. And I think the working class has finally woken up and said enough is enough. These billion dollar companies, were not made by CEOs and boards of directors. They were built off of the sweat of the working class people. We make them that money. If we don't work, there's no billion dollar profit to line their pockets. So it's time that they share the wealth and, and stop saying, whoa, we can't be profitable unless you give us these concessions. Wrong. You can't have as big of a bonus if we don't give you these concessions. It's not profitability. I think if 
if the whole world is watching and, and we all come together across the world in unity with labor, it shines the light on the need to organize and the need to be union. I mean, we, for, for so long, the American working man and woman have been just, you know, settling for whatever the company is offering. This shows that we're tired of settling. I mean, people are, the workers are tired. They're tired of being at the bottom of the hill, um, making CEOs and top executives millions and millions of dollars and yet just fighting to stay alive, to stay afloat, just to get the bare essentials that you need as a working person here in the United States of America. So I think it's a great opportunity for us just to come together and stick together and fight, because when we fight together, we win together. And even us here in Omaha, the other day, somebody from a local food store, he was just, you know, coming to see what, what it is like to be in a union and be part of it, because he sees how strong, you know, and how needed it is for um, people to be together. And so I think it is uh, putting out there, you know, for other people to, to see that if we stick together, that's how we get uh, things, you know, improvements for us as employees. That sleeping giant has awoken. Amen. True. Yeah. And, you know, we have to give solidarity to the rest of those workers who are, are walking out too, because it really is creating momentum in the working class, which when's the last time you guys saw that? Been a long time. Working class. I mean, it's amazing. So, um, so I hope everybody at, within Kellogg and in in your local union stays strong and stays together, but also realizes the power of standing with the rest of them. That was only about two thirds of the full episode. I had to edit it for time for tonight's broadcast. To hear the full unedited episode of the BCTGM Voices Project, see the link up at laborexpress.org. Unfortunately, I did have to cut some really interesting stuff about the kind of support that uh, the workers at college are looking for the from, from the wider public, including one really interesting comment the one person made about uh, how uh, drivers, truck drivers, can uh, help out by um, basically asking not to be assigned to routes that include Kellogg facilities. Definitely some interesting uh, solidarity suggested there, and there's other suggestions. Uh, so uh, check out that uh, full episode if you want to hear more on that. BCTGM Voices, like Labor Express Radio, is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which now includes more than 100 labor-themed podcasts and radio programs from around the country. So for more labor radio and labor news, definitely check out the uh, network. You can find them at laborradionetwork.org, laborradionetwork.org. That's all the time we have on tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. The song is our theme is called Workers' Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express.